Good morning and welcome to the Oaks. If we haven't met yet, my name is Terry Lee. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to thank you for being with us here today, especially on Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day to all of the moms in the room. Yeah, we can clap for that. I'm always reminded whenever I think about the importance of the role of a mother. I'm, I'm reminded of what Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.5. It shows this legacy of faith that Timothy had passed down from not only his mother, but his grandmother. Paul wrote to Timothy and he said, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Uh, what an encouragement that is to uh, the mom who uh, raises her children in a way that they would know and love Jesus, or even for those of you who uh, might be a first-generation Christian in your home, uh, that this would be the legacy that you leave as well. Um, I, I want to take a moment just to pray specifically for, uh, for people who, who come to a day like this uh, with several different uh, feelings, postures of the heart. So let's, uh, let's pray. Father God, uh, we thank you for another opportunity to gather together as a church family. Uh, we desire to give glory to your name above all else during this time. And we're thankful for this day to specifically honor mothers. Uh, Lord, we praise you for your good design. Uh, we praise you for the gift of motherhood. But we also specifically lift up each person that approaches this day in different ways. Lord, to those who are grieving the loss of a mother or grandmother or even child, Lord, would you comfort them with your presence? For those that are striving to be a godly mother, would you strengthen them and would you provide energy for this holy calling? For those that perhaps come in and they're weighed down by shame, shame uh, of having an abortion, shame of maybe even not being the mother that they wish they were or would have been, Lord, for those, would you assure them that the cross is sufficient to cover sin and to bring healing in any situation? For those that long to be mothers and feel the pain of infertility, Lord, would you in your kindness and mercy grant a peace that surpasses understanding? Lord, would you allow them to be a mother? For those that have a strained relationship with their mom, would you draw near as the good father that meets whatever relational needs might be lacking in their life? And Lord, we look to you in every circumstance, and we were reminded of that yet again this morning. So Lord, we ask that you would now illuminate the scriptures, that you would enable us to hear your voice, and we ask all of this in the powerful name of Christ. Amen. If you have a copy of God's word, would you please turn to Titus chapter 1. We are continuing our study in the book of Titus. Now, as we get to Titus 1, specifically verses 5 through 9, we're going to be looking at uh, the qualifications of uh, a godly pastor or elder. And I hope to convince you that this is actually a sermon that is applicable to every person in this room and every single Christian that is a follower of Jesus. As I was uh, thinking about this passage this week, I was reminded of a story that uh, one of my friends told me in elementary school. He and his family had gone to Pennsylvania on over Christmas break to visit family. And I grew up in you know, Panama City, Florida, so people around those parts were not very used to driving in snow or anything like that. Well, they're in Pennsylvania visiting family that kind of lived in the backwoods. 
And there was a, a snowstorm that came, and his dad was going out. Uh, now, what was so memorable uh, about this story uh, was that the, the snow was coming down. It was difficult. Visibility was low, and his dad actually got into a car accident. Now, by God's grace, everybody was okay, minimal injuries. But he said that his dad was driving and, you know, being unfamiliar with snow, uh, probably wishing that he would have just turned around and went home, decided that he could make it if he just followed the person in front of him. So as he was driving, he he recognized that there was kind of the red glow of taillights in front of him. So he said, well, as long as I can stay close enough to this car in front of me, then I should be fine. I can't really see that well, but maybe they can see a little bit better. Well, imagine his surprise as he is driving, following closely to the car in front of them, and suddenly the taillights disappear. Well, in about a split second, he realized what had just happened, because then he found himself no longer on the road, but traveling down a steep decline on some snow-covered hill in the woods of Pennsylvania, going straight down, and then he found where the other car had gone. Uh, Both drivers crashed, and you know, so like I said, minimal injuries, and yet the story is so memorable even to this day because I just thought about how, you know, bewildering that would be. I mean, can you imagine just, you know, you're straining your eyes to see, you can only make out the taillights in front of you, snow is coming down heavy, and then in a moment you find yourself just careening down a hill. And the principle that that illustrates for us that will be true in Titus 1 is that who you follow matters. Who you follow matters because if you follow a person that is following the Lord, a person that is godly, that is ultimately going to point you to Jesus, then you should flourish under their leadership because they should be able to say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And following them should lead you down the same path that is essentially following Jesus. But to follow the wrong person, to sit under the wrong teaching, to have the wrong ideas about what it means, to hold fast to the doctrine that is taught in the word, even if you are well-meaning, even if it is unintentional, following the wrong person could potentially wreck your life. And that's why this passage matters so much. Because whenever we get to Titus 1, we see that apparently false teachers had already entered these churches in Crete. Paul is writing to Titus. Uh, As you remember what we talked about a couple weeks ago, uh, after Paul was most likely released from house arrest in Rome, uh, he and Titus traveled to a few places that are undocumented in the book of Acts. But it seems that one of the places that they traveled to was Crete. And so they shared the gospel there. Uh, Churches were birthed all throughout the island of Crete. And then Paul continued his missionary journey, and he put Titus there. And he says, I want you, that's why he wrote this letter after they had been there together. He left Titus, and he wrote to Titus saying, I want you, this is in verse 5, to put into order. This is the reason I left you, to put into order what was established on Crete, and to appoint elders, to appoint pastors in these churches in Crete for the good of the people that are going to teach good doctrine. They're going to hold fast to Christ. And they're also going to have the courage to refute false teaching that has already entered the church, teaching of legalism, teaching of licentiousness that had already entered the church. 
Now, today we're going to talk a lot uh, about pastors, uh, and so I think it's probably important to define some terms before we get to, into the text. Uh, the Bible uses the term pastor or elder or overseer or shepherd interchangeably throughout Scripture. Uh, so whenever I say, you know, that this is what uh, the qualifications of an elder are, uh, I want you to hear that's a pastor, that's a, an overseer, that's the office of elder in the church. Um, that's, that's important because I was once studying the book of Titus with someone and they're like, you know, I, I really hope that I can meet these qualifications by the time I'm around 60 or so. And I was like, well, this is actually, elder is an office of the church. It's not like somebody that, you know, has an AARP membership or gets a senior discount at Denny's. Uh, this is, you know, someone that can be young, uh, but they are an elder in the church. Now, I know what you might be thinking. You might be thinking, well, this kind of sounds like a message that would only apply to me if I currently am an elder, which would mean that uh, myself and five other guys in the room need to hear this and everybody else, you know what, take the day off. Uh, but I wanna convince you that that is not the case. Um, this is important, not just if you're thinking about being an elder one day or currently are, uh, but for a few different reasons. Now, first, God might call you to be uh, a man that becomes an elder in the church. Chances are you have a lot of life to live and God is not finished with you yet. So don't rule that out as a possibility. But second, you will be responsible for appointing elders in the church. That's true at the Oaks or any other church you'd be a part of. You're, you're responsible for examining the elders in the church that you sit under. And so that's really important. Now, at the end of this letter in chapter three, verse 15, Paul is writing to Titus. He's addressed Titus, and yet he's going to do something interesting. He uses the plural word for you in verse 15 of chapter 3. Why? Because this is a letter that was to be circulated. It was to be read by everyone. I don't know why the ESV translators didn't want to put the word y'all in there, but that is literally what he is saying. Everybody that is in the church should know what a godly pastor looks like because you have entrusted yourself into, into the discipleship that, that they are teaching and leading. You've entrusted yourself into their care, and that's a really big deal. Third, this sermon should help you if God ever moves you to another church home. Maybe you get relocated by your career or by school, and now you have the difficult but, but important task of finding uh, another pastor or group of elders to sit under, and this should act as a guide for, for that, um, that time in your life. Fourth, you are constantly exposed to teaching and preaching. And this is both a gift that we have, uh, such great resources, such access through YouTube or podcasts or Instagram reels. It's just constant, right? That, that you are exposed to teaching and uh, people who are, are claiming to teach the Bible. And many of them are. And that's a really good thing that we should accept as a blessing and a gift in the time period that we live in. But it also means that you must be vigilant about the, the people that you listen to and let influence your faith. Just because someone cites a Bible verse does not necessarily mean that they are teaching sound doctrine. Um, at uh, our missional community group on Wednesday night, Emmy brought just like an, an assortment of Little Debbie snacks, anything from like Nutty Buddy bars to, you know, Twinkies, the whole deal. And so we're sitting out on the back porch and 
we, we did this thing that you should never do. We began reading the ingredients of these treats on the back of the box. Uh, now, here's a side note. If you enjoy those treats, ignorance is bliss. Don't read the back of the box because there are things that you cannot pronounce that you're putting into your body. And yet, and yet here's the takeaway. You should examine the contents and qualifications of the teaching that you ingest. We should be like the Bereans in the book of Acts that are constantly considering the word as it is taught and measuring it against the canon of scripture. And and now the final and perhaps the most simple application for why this text is going to be so important for exactly where you are right now is that the character of leaders in the church is the exact same as the character that the Christian is called to in the church. The difference between the person that is a leader or pastor in the church and the person who is a member of the church is a difference of calling, not character. In Hebrews 13, seven, we read, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Now, if a pastor should be imitated, then that means that every Christian should strive to live out the same qualities that are given to us in Titus chapter one. In 1 Peter 5, 3, Peter says that pastors are to be examples to the flock, which means that you should be able to follow the example of the elder. It's a difference of calling to the office of elder. It's not a difference in character. And for that reason, this passage is an invitation for each and every one of us to ultimately to look to Jesus, to depend upon Jesus, to seek to be blameless and above reproach because we belong to Christ. We've been purchased by his blood and we long to follow him. So to summarize this passage in a single sentence would be this. Christian leaders should look and act like Jesus because they lead you to look and act like him. In other words, if a Christian leader is modeling Christ-likeness, then you should be able to follow Jesus by following their leadership. Because as they look and act like Jesus, it should lead you to look and act like Jesus as well. Now, with that being said, let's look at Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. This is what Paul wrote to Titus. He says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. In this passage, I hope to look at three patterns of a Christ-centered church that we will see here in Crete. The first is that a group of Christians becomes a community of faith. That's what took place here. That's why Paul is writing to Titus, because a group of Christians, a group of people that individually responded to the gospel as it was preached through the mouth of Paul and Titus, now become a community of faith, a church family. 
Now, as I said before, Paul left Titus here because Paul had a very simple mission strategy. We see this throughout the entire book of Acts. He typically went into an urban center. He would preach the gospel in the synagogues. If there was one, he would then preach the gospel uh, in, in any place that he would have a hearing, any kind of forum. And then people would respond to the gospel. And as people would respond to the gospel, he would gather them together. He would appoint elders or pastors who would disciple them and lead in the church. And they would multiply churches, multiply disciples, and then he would move somewhere else and do the exact same thing over again. Now, as we look at the book of Acts and look at the New Testament letters, our desire at the Oaks is to do the exact same thing. Uh, not for us to then pick up and, and go anywhere. I want to be here forever. Uh, but, but to say, Lord, would you raise up leaders so that we could continue to plant healthy churches, uh, autonomous churches that don't want to be called the Oaks throughout our city, uh, in, in states throughout our country, and through different countries throughout the world. And that's also the mission that every church member has, uh, that we too are called to go into our neighborhoods and workplaces, even in our own, own home, to take this gospel message. And so that is what Paul has done, and that's why he has left Titus in Crete here. Now, he leaves him for a very specific reason, to put what remained into order. Now, this is what has been illustrated uh, by this sermon series that we are calling the trellis, because the vine of each one of these churches that were spread throughout the island of Crete would look a little bit different. They would have different needs. People that entered the church might have a tendency toward different sins or different hangups of doctrine. The vine might look different, and yet the structure that was needed in each and every church for the health of that church body was a structure of godly men that would lead as elders. He also points to the, to the church structure here. The study of the church, theologians call it ecclesiology, just in case you care. Uh, he says to appoint elders in every town. Now, why is that important? Because he is saying that there should be multiple elders. There, there should be multiple pastors over each church in every town that was throughout Crete. We even read that in Acts 14, 14 23, whenever Paul and Barnabas are, are getting ready to uh, leave on, you know, kind of their, the end of their missionary journey, they don't leave until they appoint elders in every single town. Now, Paul felt comfortable leaving Titus to do that because he had experience doing that here. I think this is important, and, and practically the way to, that it works out at the Oaks is that so I'm, I'm the one that uh, planted the oaks originally. Abby and I moved up here. Uh, we, you know, shortly had Jimmy and Caitlin move up, and me and Jimmy were the first elders. And over the course of time, we've added elders. We have different elders. Now we currently have six elders. So it's me and Jimmy who are paid staff elders, uh, which we kind of differentiate between our uh, staff elders by calling them pastors and our non-staff elders by calling them just elders uh, because they are lay elders. They have um, vocations in, you know, other careers, and so they're not paid by the church. But even with that being the case, staff or not staff, we are all equal in authority. This means that whenever we bring something to vote around our table, we had an elders meeting yesterday, I have one vote. Um, it doesn't matter that I am the lead pastor. Uh, there have been times that I was really passionate and excited about something. And, you know, I presented it to the group and it was voted down. And I'm good with that. Do I still think it's a good idea? Yes, I do. But no, I'm just kidding. 
<laughs> but, but that's great. I, I submit to the authority of my fellow elders, just like any church member does. Because the church doesn't need to be ordered around a single personality. It needs to be ordered around the person of Christ. And, and so while my unique role among our team of elders is to you know, primarily be praying and thinking about the future direction of our church, to be the primary teacher of our church, we all have equal authority with a desire to continue to add elders to our church because the goal is to be a group of men that can shepherd the flock of God well. And that's what we desire to do. Now, we can't just look at this passage and say, okay, well, these you know, maybe are, are practical tips for Paul's time period. Does this really apply to uh, you know, 2023? Yes, because what does Paul say? in verse five. This is as I directed you. And it's important that we spent so much time in the introduction because in that introduction, he says that he is speaking with apostolic authority. Uh, These are not Paul's, you know, uh, 10 tips to be a fast growing church. No, this is Paul speaking with apostolic authority saying, this is God's design for the church. This is good. Uh, to, to have the church structured in this way. So, so the need for godly leaders is obvious at this point, but how do you know who is qualified for this role? Well, that's what we see in verses six through nine, which sets us up for the second pattern, that called and qualified men become pastors. Called and qualified men become pastors. Um, I, I thought about putting it in this statement, but imperfect men become pastors. Uh, because I hope that, that you know that as, uh, as each of us, as the six of us read through these qualifications, there is, there is a reason for pause within us where we say, oh Lord, uh, I recognize that I do not perfectly fulfill these qualifications and yet I'm dependent upon you. Um, and, and one of the ways that we desire to model that is to admit our weakness and dependence upon Jesus as we seek to strive for these things. Now here in verses six through nine, Paul gives six negative terms, that is things that elders or pastors should not be known for. And then he gives six positive terms. These are things that pastors should be known for in the church. Now you might remember that in 1 Timothy three, verses one through seven, Paul writes an almost identical list to Timothy. He was writing to Timothy in Ephesus. Now Timothy's situation is different from Titus because Timothy was already in a place where leaders and elders had been established. Titus here is starting from scratch. Uh, Now these letters were probably written at the same time and they're almost identical. There's kind of one difference that we'll point out here in just a second. But the reason that these qualities in this list are so important, as I've said before, are two reasons. One, because you should know what a godly pastor looks like, but two, because of the character of a pastor should also be emulated by every single person that is a Christian. Uh, Theologian D.A. Carson, whenever he is talking about this list, says this. He says, this list of qualifications is remarkable for being unremarkable. He says, elders are the first of all to be examples of the Christian graces that are mandated on all Christians. Uh, I think this is important. I I know we had, several people run the Flying Pig Marathon. Uh, that was last week, right? So we had several people run that. And, and whenever a group of people run together, 
so I'm told, uh, there is there's typically someone that is a, a pace setter among them. So they typically have like a watch or something to where, you know, they're able to know what pace they're running because they don't want to run too fast. They don't want to, you know, make the group run too fast and then everybody is exhausted and then you don't end up completing the race. Uh, they also don't want to just kind of go too slow. And uh, then, you know, you cross the finish line and you're like, man, how did we far, fall so far behind the goal that we had set? for one another. Uh, So the pace setter is the one that kind of sets the tone for the group as they are running. I I make this analogy that pastors should act like pace setters in a local church congregation. And, And let me make this comparison because pastors and church members are not running different races. They're not running different races. They're running the same race. They both have the same goal to follow Christ and to look like Christ, to glorify God. They follow the same path and they both have the same method of progress, one foot after another following Jesus under the authority of his word. And because that is the case, the pastor should be able to say, follow me as I follow Christ. The elders should be able to say, follow us as we follow Christ. And church members should be able to follow Christ as they follow the leaders in that church. There shouldn't be a difference. Uh, following Christ should also be in alignment, kind of right behind those who are also following Christ and leading the charge. Now, before we get into the qualifications of character, I want to just briefly make a note on calling because this is um, an attribute that is added in 1 Timothy 3.1 that we won't find in Titus 1. He says uh, that those who desire the office of elder or pastor, they desire a noble task. Uh, and I say that because, as I said before, we, we long to raise up and send out elders that will pastor and plant other churches. Uh, we long to add elders to our elder team. So if that is something that maybe God has even planted a seed of in your heart, let us know. You desire a noble task. And you might not be ready yet, but by God's grace, you could be. To desire uh, to be an elder is a matter of calling. Next, we see character. I want to briefly walk through this list here. What is the first thing that we see in verse 6? If anyone is above reproach. Well, what does it mean to be above reproach? This is going to be repeated twice here in this passage. Well, this indicates that a person lives a life in which someone could not make a legitimate accusation against you. Uh, In other words, to use a cliche, you practice what you preach. Uh, Or someone couldn't say, oh, that person does this or this, that other people would say, no, certainly they would not do that. They are above reproach. Now, this does not mean that the person has to be perfect and completely without sin, but it means that you should model godliness in your life. Uh, in, In fact, being above reproach is kind of this general way to describe everything that is going to come after this. So to be above reproach in your marriage means that you are a husband of one wife. To be above reproach in your actions means that you are self-controlled, which is another qualification that Paul will soon give. Now, the best way to ensure, this is for everybody in the room, that you are above reproach is to be constantly aware of your need for God's grace. To be constantly aware of your need for the fact that Christ died on the cross for your sins, not just your past sins, but your future sins. And that Without the resurrection of Christ, you would not live. It's important for us to recognize this. Because if any person or any pastor claims to be flawless, then they either become proud or they become hypocritical. They put themselves above the gospel that they themselves preach. 
No, we are above reproach whenever we aim to live a holy life, whenever we are dependent upon Christ, but also when we fail, when we fall short of God's standard, we are quick to confess our sins when it's pointed out, whenever we see it in our own lives. We must repent to those that we have wronged to follow Christ, to be above reproach, because no pastor or leader is above the gospel they preach. No, we become above reproach by remaining under the fountain of God's grace. In 1 Timothy 4, 15, Paul will write to Timothy and he will say, practice these things that others may see your progress. That's a comfort to me that Paul can say, hey, practice these things. Seek to grow in these things that other people would see your progress, that, that the pastors, leaders, and church members would all be sanctified by the grace of God. Let me ask this by way of application. Are you yourself above reproach? With that being said, is there sin in your life that you need to ask God that he would rid you from with the power of the gospel? Let me give you a hypothetical scenario. If, if someone else was to say, oh, um, you know, she's spreading gossip at work, or uh, I mean, this guy is, uh, you know, cheating money on his taxes. If someone was to say that about you to someone else, would the other person's response be, oh no, there's no way they could ever do that? Or would they say, I could kind of see it. That's probably a good indicator of, of whether you're living a life that is above reproach or not. The next qualification here is that they are the husband of one wife, to continue, his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now, these next two qualities deal with the way that a husband or a father leads in the home. Why is that so important? Because a man is called to love his wife like Christ loves the church. And so if, if he is to show that covenant love to others, he must exhibit it within his own home and faithfulness. If, if, a, if the church is God's household and he's given authority in that realm, then he should also exercise the God-given authority that he has as a father in his own household. Now, as we get into this section, we stumble upon an unavoidable question that I get to deal with. Can a woman, can a female be an elder or a pastor? If here we're talking about uh, the husband of one wife, the father of his children. So could a, could a woman be a pastor or an elder? And I would say, no. The office of pastor or elder in the local church is a reflection of the husband and father's leadership in the home, right? So you can't say this is ultimately a picture of what God has established in the home and then have those roles subverted in, in the church, in the local church. Uh, so how does that play out in the Oaks? Well, at the Oaks, we have women and men that are in leadership roles uh, as team leaders, as missional community leaders on our staff, uh, as deacons and deaconesses. But the office of elder is different. Why? Because it is one in which authority is exercised in the church. And what does Paul say in 1 Timothy 2.12? He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Now, we live in a society that is constantly trying to remove the distinction between male and female. But here we uphold the complementary design between man and woman. And what does this mean? That we believe that man and woman are created equal in value as image bearers before God, but they are distinct in the roles that God has created them for. 
I also recognize there are a lot of women that have the gift of teaching. Um, I read a book two weeks ago written by a woman named Janie Ortland, and I benefited greatly from that book. However, exercising authority by teaching in a church gathering or holding the office of elder is different than writing a book or leading an MC group discussion. Now, since it is Mother's Day, perhaps this analogy will help us kind of grasp why this can be the case. Uh, Women are the only gender that is capable of bearing children. And we all agree with that. Men cannot get pregnant, and the title of mother is reserved for women alone. Now, that should not offend a single person here because that is a part of God's good design. No man in the room should say, God thinks less of me or God doesn't love me because I can't be a mom. Well, in the same way, God has designed the role of pastor to be a male-only role. Now, I also know this is a touchy issue. This can be a sensitive issue for many people, so feel free to reach out if I can help in any way. Glad to grab coffee with you to talk about this more. But whenever we come to God's Word and and we examine our culture and we examine what God has clearly said, we want to hold fast to what God has said. And with that being said, let's examine a little bit further the description of being the husband of one wife. Now, what is meant by this is faithfulness, by moral and sexual purity to the woman that you are married to if you are married. Uh, This doesn't rule out that single men could be an elder. That certainly could be the case. Um, It it also doesn't rule out that uh, if there has been a case in which uh, someone has gone through a divorce, and this is controversial, people have maybe different views on this, Uh, but personally, I believe that if someone has gone through uh, a divorce and they were biblical grounds for divorce and it has been restored and recognized by the church, that that man would be qualified to be an elder. This is a matter of purity and faithfulness to the woman that you are married to or to the Lord if you are not married. In that case, Are you being faithful to your spouse? Are you being sexually pure? Is there anything that you need to repent of that ultimately would not make you meet this qualification? We read that his children are believers. Now, this this can be kind of puzzling for people because you're like, well, I don't know. I mean, neither one of my kids have professed faith in Christ yet. Uh, So does that mean that I can't be an elder? Well, hopefully not. Well, the word that is used here that is translated as believers uh, could also be translated as faithful. And you continue to read the passage, and what do we read? They're not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. This means that ultimately a pastor has children who are faithful to follow his leadership in the home. Uh, I don't think that what is being implied here is that they have to confess that, um, you know, Christ is Lord in in a way and then follow in baptism. Certainly that would be the hope and goal. Uh, But in chapter one, verses one through four, we looked at the teaching of God's elect and this ultimately isn't something that we have control over. And so I think the most faithful interpretation here would be that um, a husband who is an elder should lead a home in which his children joyfully submit to him. Now, once again, I mean, that is, uh, <laughs> how do I say this in a way that's like, yeah, being a dad is hard. Uh, that's the theological uh, way, to, way to describe parenthood. Um, no, but, but God gives grace, and ultimately you lead in a way in which you're not provoking your children to anger, but that uh, you lead in a way that honors Christ. 
uh, we read in verse 7 that they are not arrogant. He must not be, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. We're told that again. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. Now, what is said here in a positive way after those descriptions are given? That he must be self-controlled, that he must be upright and holy. We look at that and we see that self-controlled is a good summary of all of these things. And self-control is a fruit of the Spirit that every Christian is called to. And so that shouldn't surprise us as we each seek to imitate this quality. Let me ask, how do you respond when things don't go your way? Whenever your plans are just totally ruined, how do you respond? Are you self-controlled? Are you irritable? Are you angry? Do you get quick-tempered with other people? Are you irritable? When you're anxious or you're overwhelmed, do you overindulge in alcohol or pills or some other drug? Do you find yourself just kind of reacting reacting to life as it happens to you? Or are you intentional in your pursuit of God to have Christ not only as your first priority on a list of things that matter, but having him central in your life that all of your other priorities orbit around? That's what it means ultimately to be self-controlled, follower of Christ. And in verse 8, it should be hospitable. Now, that one has always struck me. It's interesting to find hospitality as a, a trait that is required of an elder. It's having a disposition of friendliness, a willingness to open up not only your home, but your life to other people. In 1 Peter 4, 9 and Romans 12, 13, hospitality is commended to every Christian. And as a pastor, nothing makes me happier than whenever I know that our church members are sharing meals together and whenever they're spending their free time together. Uh, whenever I found out that like, you know, there's a group that's just playing ultimate Frisbee behind the rec center on Monday nights, I was like, that's awesome. I love that. Hospitality is, is more than just kind of having people over for a meal. That's hosting. Hospitality is a disposition of the heart that can certainly be shown in that way, but encompasses more than that. Alexander Strasch says this, through the ministry of hospitality, we share the things we value most family, home, financial resources, food, privacy, and time. In other words, we share our lives. Hear me say this, hospitality is the greatest ministry that every single church member is called to in our church, to open up your lives to one another. Because is that not what Christ has done to us? What does it mean for him to be incarnational? It was to take on flesh, to open his life up to us. And we desire to do the same for others. Verse 9, it's interesting because in verse 9, we get to the only qualification in this passage that requires a certain skill. The only qualification in this passage that requires a certain skill. Everything up to this point has been about character, not capability. And what are we told in verse 9? That he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Uh, the, the man who is qualified for an elder, to be an elder in the church, holds firmly to the word of God as it was taught and that he's able to give instruction. He's able to teach the word of God. He's also, he has the courage, the conviction to be able to refute false doctrine as it comes. We're gonna talk a lot more about that in the passage after this that we will see next week. 
But I believe this, this way of thinking, character over competency, if you will, challenges our world's way of thinking about leadership. Because often our world puts competency or capability over character. Uh, someone is considered a good leader as long as they're great at making decisions that you know, has a huge impact or uh, they're great at task management, ability to increase influence or drive sales. All of that seems to matter in our culture more than the character of the person that is leading. And, and leadership in the church, it doesn't ignore a person's capability, but it prioritizes a person's character. And I think this is a good reminder because um, I know myself as a pastor, I know several of you who lead Young Life Ministries or College Life or uh, you know, leading a missional community group, you can, you can fall prey to this false measure of health in your leadership that says things are growing. A lot of people are coming. Would God really bless all of this that I'm doing if I didn't have a good character, if I wasn't truly following Jesus? And I want you to know that, that that's a really dangerous way to measure health and success. You should measure yourself in relationship to the Lord and say, am I being faithful? Am I being obedient? Let, not, let me not just look at the results of this. I mean, even as we consider the ministry of, of others, and we wanna be careful in doing that, but, but we're reminded of what Paul wrote to Timothy, that people would heap up teachers that would scratch their itching ears that people would actually be drawn to a message that is less than the gospel, that is not true to God's word. And so we wanna make sure the measures that we are using of a healthy ministry and leadership ultimately are in alignment with God's word and not just kind of the growth or the measures that we might measure with our own eyes. Um, now, before I, before I move on into kind of focusing on Christ, I want to just kind of say this really practically, because as I've said about this series, I'm hoping that this is kind of a really practical setup for uh, the next stage of life in our church. So whenever I'm considering someone uh, for a leadership position at the Oaks, uh, and that can be missional community group leader, Sunday leader, elder, any of these uh, roles, I think through four traits uh, character, which we have talked about here in length, um, the, the person's chemistry, like with others, do they like love the, the direction that our church is headed and are they a joy to work with? Uh, competency, are they able to do the job that um, we're considering them for? And finally, capacity. Uh, so at their current um, stage of life with their current job responsibilities, are they able to prioritize the role that, uh, that we're asking them to fill? Um, so as you think about yourself and you're thinking, man, I, I would love to be a missional community leader. I would love to be a Sunday leader in Junior Oaks. Um, I, I want to take the next, next step. I'd love to be a deacon. Uh, consider those things. Your, your character. Are you following Christ? Can I point to you and say, follow them as they follow Jesus? Uh, your, your chemistry. Are people like, hey, it is, it, you know, is it a, it's a joy to work with that person. Now, competency, the, the big thing here is, are you teachable? Right? Are you able to submit to God's word and, and learn? Because competency is uh, the primary one of these that can be taught along the way. And fourth, capacity, do you have the time right now? Because sometimes it just might be not now. Now, as we think about elders in the church, the role of elders in the church, ultimately, the, the purpose of this sermon is not to point to any one person in the church, but to point us to the person of Jesus. And why is that? Because Christ in his kindness 
gives under shepherds to be in the local body of his flock because he is the chief shepherd who leads and guides and feeds his flock, which is every single one of us. So the third pattern here is that the good shepherd leads and feeds his sheep. And this is where we're going to take a detour from the book of Titus to consider Christ. God's design for the church ultimately is to point to Jesus, who is our good shepherd. Pastors are shepherds, but they are the under shepherds. Whenever Peter writes to the elders in the church in 1 Peter 5, 4, Jesus is referred to, the chief, is referred to as the chief shepherd. Pastors are simply those who are filled with the Holy Spirit to be the hands, feet, and voice of Christ among his people. The ultimate goal of this sermon is to look to Christ. And immediately, my thoughts were turned to Psalm 23, the passage that Connor read at the very beginning of our gathering, that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I love the way that the Jesus Storybook Bible puts that line. It says, I have everything I need. I shall not want for anything. Why? Because the Lord is my shepherd. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's, his name's sake. Now, perhaps you walked in this morning and you're like, I don't know what to do uh, with a sermon about elders or pastors, but I do know right now I'm confused. And there are some big things on my plate that I feel like I can't bear on my own and I feel weighed down by it. Maybe you walked in and you're hurting because of something that is going on in your life or the life of another person. Maybe you're fearful about the future. Maybe you find yourself right now anxious about some pressing situation. And this is the message that you need to hear, that the Lord God is a good shepherd. The Lord, that powerful name that was revealed to Moses in front of the burning bush, the great I am, that omnipotent, sovereign Lord wants you to call him your shepherd. That's how he leads his sheep. He's kind, he's gracious, he's merciful. He's not just any shepherd, he's your shepherd. And he is simultaneously strong enough to sustain the universe and tender enough to care for you. There were few periods of King's David, King David's life that were marked by ease, and he was often on the run. He was often in danger of attack, and yet he pens this psalm as a confident proclamation that the Lord sees us, knows us, and cares for us. That's true of you. Because Christ is your shepherd, you don't have to want for anything. He'll provide all that you need. He gives you rest rest in green pastures, in the frenetic pace of life with the to-do lists that are never quite done. Jesus invites you to rest your weary soul in his accomplished work on the cross and in his present reign over the entire universe. He leads us. He leads us beside still waters. He leads us in paths of righteousness. This is why Jesus said to his disciples, come and follow me because he is the good shepherd who leads his sheep. For some of you, you need to receive that invitation. For some of you, you need to recommit to have a resolve to follow Jesus with zeal. He restores your soul. This hit me a different way this time because this implies that Jesus isn't surprised by your need to be restored. 
he restores my soul, David writes, which means that he isn't a shepherd that is surprised by your sin and your brokenness and your inconsistency. He is a shepherd that restores because he is committed to needy and broken sheep who need restoration. If we were to keep walking through the psalm, which we certainly could, we could talk about how the good shepherd walks through valleys of sorrow and difficulty with us. We could talk about he, how he brings us to the point in which our problems are not absent, but he is constantly present in the midst of them. And David knew that the Lord was his shepherd. And whenever Jesus is speaking in John 10, the passage that Caleb read earlier, he identifies himself as the fulfillment of Psalm 23, saying, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold, both Jew and Gentile. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one Shepherd. The shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This beautiful irony that the shepherd who rules over all would also become the lamb that was slain for the good of the flock he leads. That he laid down his life for you on the cross, covering your sin with his blood, bearing the penalty of wrath that you and I deserved. And now he is risen and he forever reigns as the shepherd of his people. The goal of the local church is ultimately to serve the great and good shepherd who is Christ. So what does it look like for you to follow the good shepherd? Four questions for examination. Perhaps you would write these down, look over them during our time of communion. Do I know him? It says that those who are his sheep would know the good shepherd. Do you know him? Are you listening to his voice? Is there, is there some aspect of your life where you're entertaining sin or maybe just kind of delaying obedience, are you listening to his voice? Are you submitting to his care? Or are you wandering from it? You say, Lord, I know that you lead me into green pastures, but I got some stuff I gotta figure out right now. Are you submitting to him? And fourth, how can I be to others as Christ has been to me? This is the beauty of the local church. Uh, that yes, there is an office of elder or pastor, but each of us have been shepherded by Christ to then care for others. As Christ has been to you, how can you be to others? And we rest in this fact, that, that one of the elders in John's revelation, in the book of Revelation, says this in Revelation 7. As he's looking upon the redeemed, he says, they shall hunger no more neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat for the lamb in the midst of the throne that is Jesus will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Because if you follow Jesus, you will not wreck your life. You will find it in him. Let's pray.